0: My name is Christian. I'm heading the company building unit Forward 31 of Porsche Digital. And I'm very happy to be here in the room together with Tim Lieberrecht. He's the co-CEO, co-founder and co-creator of the House of Beautiful Business. This is a brand new episode of the next Visions and House of Beautiful Business podcast, the second season. Tim, we are here in Berlin. Where are we exactly? And who are the beautiful minds we are listening to?
1: We are at Tucholsky Palace. It's a building in Berlin Mitte. We're in this lounge here. And you could argue that Berlin is, Germany for that matter, is one of the few, you could argue, remaining bastions of Western-style democracy, which, as we know from various studies, is very much under assault. The support worldwide for democracy is declining, and that is reason for concern. So does democracy have a future? That's the topic of the conversation we're about to listen to between Alex Evans and Anab Jain. Anab Jain is a speculative designer. So she's using design as a storytelling device to imagine unimaginable futures, if you will. She's the co-founder and director of the design studio Superflux. And Alex Evans is the founder of the Collective Psychology Project. So he is interested in how to use psychology and politics for good, and how to use it to overcome the polarization of our societies. I am very intrigued what's
0: happening now, so listen to the stories they're telling to us.
2: Hi, Alex. Hi, nice Anna. Nice to see you.
3: Great to meet you. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. And you? How are you doing?
2: I'm all right. Have we met before? I think we have, right?
3: Or no? So, well, I was trying to remember. Like, I I'm bad at remembering faces, but like yeah, but, when I was looking again at your bio, I was like, this feels very familiar. So I wonder yeah. if we've had a conversation before. Yeah,
2: I kind of feel as well. I wonder whether we were uh, we met in a conference or whether um, I don't know. I just kind of feel like met a, a long time ago or briefly met in some way. But um, it's really nice because I have been following your work, so it's really nice to do this together.
3: Yeah, likewise. Where should we start today? I mean, should I we start know. with what we're working on and how we came to be doing it, or um...
2: yes, yes, because I mean, um, it's supposed to be the future of democracy, and I, um, I was telling Tim that you know I'm not really an expert in this subject, you know, I mean, I I think about it a lot, but I'm not, uh, I can have thoughts, but I I think it would be more about amplifying the voices of people who think a lot more about this than myself. Uh, I'm I'm more happy, obviously, to talk about what I'm working on.
3: Great. Well, why don't we start there and then we can sort of like steer towards democracy as much as we can after we've done that. Would you like to go first?
2: Yeah, why don't you go first?
3: Okay. Um, So... I now run a thing called the Collective Psychology Project, which I started uh, nearly two years ago. And the backstory to it is that uh, before I was doing this, I was working at an organization called Avaz, which is a big global campaigning organization, and was running its Brexit campaign. Um, And my job was to try and secure a second referendum in the UK on Brexit. And if we managed that, to win it for Remain. Um, So that went really well, obviously. But uh, over the course of a year and a bit, working on that, um, I got really uneasy about political polarisation. I could see the way that our politics in the UK was going in this very kind of tribal, them and us sort of direction. Mm -hmm. And I just became increasingly uneasy that I was part of the problem on that rather than doing anything to kind of heal that divide. So then I took a sabbatical in 2018, and through a kind of series of coincidences, we ended up living in Jerusalem for six months for my wife's job. Yeah. And of course, the first thing I saw there was a form of political polarization that was way more extreme than anything um, to do with Brexit. Yeah. But then I also found something really hopeful and fascinating, which was the work of a group of trauma psychologists who basically said that if you want to understand polarization between Israelis and Palestinians, you have to look at the mental health context because everybody, whether they're Israeli or Palestinian, is living with some degree of what they called continuous traumatic stress all the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that might be the Israelis being sort of afraid of a terrorist attack or even of invasion, and Palestinians worrying about arbitrary arrest or that their house might be the next to get demolished. So everyone's living in this heightened state of threat perception all the time. Mm-hmm. And what these psychologists um, observed was that when people are displaying symptoms of continuous traumatic stress, which include things like hypervigilance, um, anxiety, irritability, um, a tendency to other people, um, when everyone's doing that, of course it seeps out into politics. And and this blew my mind because I thought this reminds me of Brexit in some ways Mm -hmm. and of Trump's America. But I Mm -hmm. hadn't really seen much work to surface these political dimensions of polarisation. And so when I got back to the UK, I I started the Collective Psychology Project and started doing some research on this. And one of the things that really stood out from opinion polling data, both in the run-up to the Brexit referendum and in the run-up to Trump's election in the US, was how much threat perception there was on both Mm. sides of each of those political divides.
2: Um,
3: And so I became fascinated in what it would look like to try and, if you like, inoculate societies against political polarization, in particular against the backdrop of things like Cambridge Analytica, where you have these very sophisticated mashups of psychology and social media yeah. aimed to kind of trigger us into seeing the world in them-and-us terms just when it counts. Mm-hmm. So that that was sort of how the Collective Psychology Project came to be. And I guess the question right at the heart of the project is how can we prompt more of us to see ourselves and act as part of a larger us rather than a them and us because it's only as a larger us that we will be able to deal with the kind of defining issues of the 21st century whether that's inequality or climate breakdown um, or structural racism and prejudice or you know you name it i mean there's a long list of issues all of which require us to come together so that's really what the collective psychology project's about how about you
2: I come from a a design and film and experiential futures background. I co-run a design studio called Superflux, my partner, John Arden, for quite a few years, over a decade now. We look at trends and weak signals and try and understand the kind of increasingly complex, uncertain future. And we try and find ways to zoom into potential different possible futures in order to try and um, imagine what it might feel like to live in these different possible futures and try and take people with us on that journey into these futures. We try and make them We really work a lot with storytelling and scenarios and kind of physical artifacts and experiences and I suppose at the heart of all of this kind of thinking and exploring the future is to help people see that, you know, the world and the future is truly uncertain. And that, um, you know, to kind of do to, to understand and to navigate this uncertainty means that we need to be able to hold multiple possible views simultaneously in front of us. And we we should find a way to see the connections between these possible worlds. And it is it is often beyond our kind of cognitive day. It, it's, it's a cognitive overload in a way to start pushing ourselves to think about all the multiple possible future worlds. So we try and do that through different stories. But I suppose in some way, the work we do is similar to yours because at the heart of it is the idea that this kind of emotional embodiment of an experience of a particular future can resonate uh, and, and drive home the point around care and cooperation and uh, resurgence and replenishment and all, all these kind of things that we need more of. So, so to show that kind of the divisiveness That is a kind of a key strategy of current political powers, um, is not going to help us build uh, more hopeful, uh, actively hopeful futures. So, suppose my work is uh, spread across different themes. You know, we've been spent the last five years looking at uh, how can we make the kind of hyper object of climate change more tangible and more palpable, How? what might it feel like for a person to understand what might actually feel like a Western, from a Western point of view, live in a climate-altered future. Um, and so a lot of this work has led me to kind of explore a more kind of a broader idea of politics at a kind sort of meta level which i'm calling the more than human politics where we see ourselves as interdependent with all of the species on the planet and we start to understand our uh, our post anthropocentric uh, position in this planet and so if 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 we love the earth and the earth loves us back and if we are in this relational a bind what is it that really matters and how should we move towards that so that's kind of
3: <laughs> wow that's that's absolutely fascinating there's so many crossovers yeah, um, yeah. i mean i guess uh, one thing that makes me think of is um we did some work at the collective psychology project um which came out about 3 or 4 months ago right. about collective grief yeah. Uh, and it, it actually started out that it was going to be a report about collective grief on climate change, because obviously climate grief has become hugely topical. Um, but then COVID happened. And I said to my co-authors, OK, either we need to mothball this until right after the pandemic or we need to repurpose it as being about COVID. And so that's what we did. But in that report, one of the things I mean, one of the arguments is that you know we may think that this pandemic and all of the disruptions it's driving are completely unprecedented. Um, but actually that in reality humans have faced cataclysms lots of times before and that actually our ancestors have deep wisdom uh, to teach us about how to navigate cataclysms um, if we're willing to listen. And So where we went with that is looking for myths, like really deep stories that had helped people in the past to navigate times of cataclysm. And the three that we sort of picked out were we called them apocalypse restoration and emergence. So apocalypse, I mean obviously these days, you know, we have a whole genre of apocalypse fiction. <laughs> yeah, um yeah, yeah. but and it usually means the end of the world. But you yeah. know, we we were making the point that you know in, in the original mythic context, apocalypse means something different. It's all about a revelation, a kind of unveiling of reality as it really is, a, a huge reality check. And there's certainly lots of that going on you know, with COVID, for example, and how it's showing, you know, who the real key workers in societies are or the interdependencies and also vulnerabilities that come um, with the way that we live today, et cetera. Um, Restoration, second, is the, you know, those sort of myths that are about how something fundamental has gone wrong in the world and needs to be repaired in some way. And it always fascinates me how many of the kind of most wildly successful works of fiction um, in like novels or movies are so often restoration stories so you think of like harry potter or lion the witch in the wardrobe or star wars or lord of the rings these are all stories where something fundamental has gone wrong and needs to be repaired often by a kind of heroic act of self-sacrifice and that's interesting because i think self-sacrifice is another theme that's present in this moment in the way that for example people are being asked or you know during lockdown we're asked to kind of Stay at home and avoid social contact in order to protect the most vulnerable people in society. Um, and then emergence is, I guess, the sort of you know the the one that's fascinating to me because I think restoration is a really powerful story, particularly when we think about our relationship with nature. You know, I've always kind of hated sustainable development; it's such a dry concept. Whereas restoration, the idea that we actually heal the damage we've done, uh, is much more energizing. But then when you're looking at human society. I think, you know, if it's just a restoration story, it's quite backward looking. It sort of implies there was a perfect order that we need to find our way back to. Whereas I think that, you know, what excites me about emergent stories is that they hold the potential of seeing this as almost like an initiatory moment, like those sort of tests that, that, you know, Indigenous societies would often have at the threshold from adolescence to adulthood, where you know that there is a real risk of kind of deep harm or even of death at those moments but also the possibility of kind of breaking through to genuine maturity and that in some ways when you look at an issue on the scale of climate change th- there's you know wisdom in there for us about this kind of moment that it is a sort of test about can we make it through to an us which includes all 7.8 billion people and other species and you know people and other species that haven't been born yet if we can see ourselves as part of a collective on that scale, then that's what passing that test looks like. But if we can't find it in ourselves to do that, then we're not going to be well-equipped to navigate this kind of stretch of rapids on the river, if you like. So I feel like, you know, those emergent stories where you're looking at not just what's being revealed in apocalypse myths, not just what's being healed in restoration myths, but also what's being born in us. Um, There's something kind of, you know, really powerful, I think, in those sort of stories.
2: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I've been reading actually this book which is under my microphone called After Geoengineering by Holly Jean Buck. And um her last chapter is really um about this idea that you know um climate restoration is a is a nostalgic project, even though I I, I think there are many things that where restoration makes a a lot of sense and is 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 deeply meaningful Um, uh, she uh, I think is inspired from Donna Haraway and uses a lot of the rewords, so you know, I'm very inspired by that as well. The idea of resurgence or the idea of uh, reimagination or recommoning and replenishment, and you know, it's this idea that uh, a renewal um, is is kind of in some way again tying into the idea of grief that without without mourning and without loss, um, this is. We we as especially I think here in the West there is such an attachment to linear progress that we do not um, stop and moan and grieve and 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 collectively uh, find means to uh, kind of you know deal with loss um, because we we have this inherent um, kind of deep rooted. Uh, uh, you know, kind of idea that there is only progress and there is infinite progress and things can't end because there's always going to be, it is going to continue this way, this exponential growth even. So I think, I think challenging that idea of, you know, this challenging the pursuit of novelty and challenging um, this kind of um, desire to keep going draws in very nicely with the idea of emergence because that means you are ready to lose and you're ready to acknowledge the instability and the uncertainty that comes with loss and you are then ready to find ways to navigate that instability and I feel moving forward we have so much as you said all the issues you mentioned from climate crisis to you know political disenfranchisement to you know um uh, uh, r- racial injustice and reparation work that needs to be done in every in everything we need to do there is go- that there, there is a need for us to find a way to navigate so many different um um kind of moments of uh, deep uncertainty that the only way we can do that is without othering, you know, without uh, taking sides, you know, uh, by coming together. But it's, uh, and that's where I think the politics comes in, I think, and, and the idea of democracy comes in because I think it is intentional to keep us divided, is an intentional, very deep rooted uh, strategy of divide and rule at every level. So it's not just governments, it's corporations, it's social media platforms. Social media platforms today are uh, weaponizing outrage so that people are constantly outraged and, and lashing out at each other. And that's what brings you back to see who outraged whom more and you know who got more angry at who. And that is keeping us uh at it's that is at odds with the need to move together to, to to towards emergence or resurgence or you know whatever so i think that's where i think at a fundamental level if we were to talk about whatever democracy means if to, to bring it to that would be to say that you know um there is no static definition of democracy and um uh, its sense and its contents can be defined by us, by the kind of desirable future that we want to head towards. So so I could kind of ask you, what should democracy mean and stand for?
3: Yeah. It's a great question. I mean, I, I think the two things that stand out for me and what you just said, I think one part of it is I agree with you about the deficiencies of democracy as we have it now. Someone once described it to me as a a snapshot of a disagreement that takes place once every five years. And I think there's real (laughs) truth to that. There's no effort to kind of bridge the gap or find common ground or think things through together. It's just like a snapshot. Uh, And then we're told, there you are, right, leave it to the experts for the next five years. And I, I also agree with you, of course, about social media and how the algorithms that determine the content that we see are all based on just what will monetize our attention most effectively. And that's obviously usually the triggering content or the outraging content or the stuff that will push us into a fight or flight response. And I guess all I'd add to that is that I, although I mean, I absolutely agree with all of the criticisms made of companies like Facebook on that, I, I feel like it's a, a much broader problem than that as well. Because if you look at a lot of um, the media, for example, um, you know, I look at The Guardian, which loves to kind of preach about Facebook, but actually is guilty often of the same things of sort of finding the most sensational spin on a on an issue that it's covering. And also when you look at NGO campaigners, I mean, I've spent lots of my career working with NGOs and the the people who work in that world, myself included, like to see ourselves as the good guys, as the progressives, but actually very often you know, we will build campaigns around the idea of like, we've got to have a really resonant baddie, a really good villain. Um, And we know that 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 works well for kind of generating media hits and maximising supporter engagement and fundraising income and all this stuff. But unfortunately, it means our whole model of campaigning rests on othering somebody. And so even as we fight for progressive internationalism on issues like climate or international development or refugee rights, we're entrenching the very them and us dynamics that imperil progress on those issues it's a deep irony and so one of the things we're working on a bit at the collective psychology project is to try and find examples of larger us campaigning rather than them and us campaigning so what are th- what are the examples out there of campaigning that fights for kind of values and principles but in a way that persuades that builds bridges that constructs a larger us and you know i always love the example of the way that the equal marriage movement in the us used deep canvassing as a political tactic. So they trained up activists to have these very emotionally demanding doorstep conversations with their most ardent political opponents, with the kind of real homophobes, and go out and sort of have conversations that were designed to start with listening and then finding a a sort of place where empathy could occur, some kind of shared experience, and then work out from there to kind of, you know, playback what the activist had heard. And they, they were sort of, you know, it was very resource intensive. The conversations took a long time, the training to do them took a long time, but it sort of won over people from the other side of the political spectrum, which was something that, you know, conventional wisdom said was impossible. So I guess, I mean, and to come to your question about what, what it means for democracy, I guess, you know, my takeaway from that is that we need to pay more attention than we have tended to do to the feedback loop or feedback loops between the state of the world and our states of mind. Because I think that, you know, in an age of, you know, kind of where in one sense we're all hyper-empowered, you know, we can all have a global platform, our views and the things that scare us can kind of ripple through this collective central nervous system that social media has basically become. So we all have, you know, a platform and have influence. And so the question of our individual mental and emotional state becomes you know, something that has collective impact. I mean, if we are able to stay rooted and stay centered, even in the face of things that might be deeply triggering to us, if we're able to feel empathy for our political opponents, um, if we feel like we have agency and feel like we belong in a community where we're valued, these things will all push politics in one direction. But if we feel lonely and alienated and like we have no power, um, and if we, you know, are not able to kind of manage our mental and emotional state in any way, then we're just ripe for the picking by those sort of, you know, the forces that you mentioned earlier that have a stake in keeping us in them and us mode. So I think that just leaves this big question about, well, if, you know, whose job is it uh, to help kind of propagate those capabilities so that we can take care of ourselves and take care of each other and our communities, and then ultimately take care of our societies and the world, recognizing that each of those challenges is both political and psychological at the same time. But it sounds like, in a way, that's the sort of work that you do at Superflux. That's what's so fascinating. You're making it experiential. It's not just analytical at all.
2: No, yeah, it is exactly. I mean, I suppose at a very, you know, a, 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 like a drop in the ocean sort of a, a way, to be honest, it's it, it kind of... We often think of it as a form of slow activism, in in a sense that you know um, we all fight us our, our fights in different ways, and uh, can can the can the stories we tell and the worlds we open up uh, kind of spark reflection and critical thinking uh, and raise questions. Amongst uh, people who bear witness to them in, and enable them to tell their own stories, enable them to reflect on their own choices and decisions, and the actions that they are taking today, um, and uh, these are very uh, difficult things to measure, and and that's 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 why. Um, it's hard to know whether you manage to change people's minds or not. I really, I didn't know about the Deep Canvassing uh, project. And I find that fascinating, because that would have felt so immediate. I imagine that, you know, you you are in this one-on-one conversation with someone who, who, you know, is going to completely disagree with you, presumably. But within that time that you are able to potentially change their minds and i have um what we find is in the stories and the futures we tell um with the with a very big kind of a headline that this is not a prediction this is not how the future will be this is one possible future for you to explore what it would feel like, um, people get sometimes very angry that this is not the future I want. This is too dystopian or too utopian, or, uh, this leaves so-and-so out and this amplifies this one's voice and doesn't. And, 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 and you very quickly realize that we, we so much want to hold on to our kind of certainty and what we know as being the truth. And, um, There is, there is, it's very hard to see beyond your idea of truth as something else that could possibly be there. And to be confronted with that in such a visceral form can be very overwhelming that's what we found. Like you walk into an apartment and you see a home that feels very familiar, but then suddenly you have recipe books that say pets as protein, or you have lots of actual food growing contraptions that have taken up most of your living area. Uh, To me, to us, it felt like a future of hope where despite the worst case consequences of climate crisis we've managed to thrive not just adapt and survive but even thrive Uh, and 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 it's a sign of hope that life is still there and people there's children's toys and drawings on the walls that you know they seem to be okay but it's really difficult for people to to get into that of course it changed completely after the wildfires in Australia because this show was still going on Uh, and then people were like oh this is too utopian it's going to be a lot worse. So I think the the, the problem I find is this kind of temporal myopia that uh, for us to be able to think or for people to be able to feel like they are... Um, empowering themselves and their community and moving forward as you said towards this future they have to be able to see themselves in that future and quite often I find that when people have to think about themselves in the future they start thinking of it as if it was somebody else not themselves and that kind of temporal distancing takes place so how do we what are the ways in which um what are the instruments that can enable people to to go with it despite not knowing what lies ahead? Um, ha. And I say this with a lot of humility because I know that certainty is a privilege. And for me to be able to say that sitting here is a privilege. And for a lot of people right now, uncertainty is the only way of life, you know. So what can we tell them you know I mean what 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 lies ahead it's I, I don't think this there's a definite answer it's just a question you
3: know <laughs> I mean I guess one, one of the things I've been fascinated in for a few years is what it's going to mean for storytelling and for empathy when virtual and mixed reality becomes our default Means of using the internet and social media. And I'm thinking especially of a a story that Kevin Kelly, the founding editor of Wired, wrote three or four years ago about a company called Magic Leap, which is doing sort of amazing things in VR. And, you know, he made this observation, which really stayed with me that although the experiences that you have in virtual reality are not real, the emotional responses are and they stay with you. And one of my favourite examples of that was how I, I used to do a lot of work in and around the United Nations. And if you've ever been to the UN General Assembly each September, I mean, it's the most boring, dry sort of gathering you can imagine, and people just show up and read their talking points at each other. And it's the absolute antithesis of a kind of genuine human encounter. But what they tried a few years back was that they they set up a little virtual reality stand, a booth, in the lobby of the UN and all these delegates from governments were invited uh, on their way into the building to put on a VR headset and go, I think it was in real time, to um, a refugee camp on in Lebanon on the border with Syria and just spend some time um, with a refugee and her children just to see what that was like. And the bit that really stayed with me in the, in the write-up that I read of this was that um, the person running the booth reported that it was not unusual to get the headsets back at the end of someone's experience wet with tears because, you know, that was the kind of the intensity of emotional experience they were having. And the thought, the other thought that kind of stayed with me after this is that, you know, in that sense, once this, you know, once we've dispensed with screens and keyboards as completely anachronistic, and we're just using VR as the kind of standard way of, of using of online experience, which is not that far away, it'll create almost this like storytelling superpower that will be available to everybody which means it'll be used for both good and ill like every other technology in human history and that gives me lots of hope and lots of unease at the same time because on the one hand you have the scope for kind of experiences that really build our empathy for each other and make us into kind of better citizens the sort of people who will be better participants in democracy like that example at the united nations but equally all of those types of content that you mentioned earlier that social media algorithms push at us today, the stuff that's triggering and polarizing and takes us into fight or flight, you know, all of that will be supercharged too. So it sort of feels like we're in this race between kind of, you know, wisdom and ignorance, I guess you could characterize it as to, you know, how these new storytelling tools get used. Um, And I, I think in a way that sort of, you know. It sounds. I I feel like the work you've been doing at Superflux is kind of, you know, super early pioneering in that space because you've been creating immersive experiences offline, um, and now we'll be able to create equally immersive experiences online. Um, And I'm just, I mean, do you does that do you do you feel more hope or more unease when you contemplate that prospect
2: Uh, of uh, of VR of of like a metaverse, Uh, uh, the idea of this kind of no um uh, yeah, being in a virtual and a digital space
3: right, and the kind uh, of you know and the it. just free availability of all of these storytelling superpowers,
2: I suppose it's exciting at on one level, so just similar to that uh v r experience the u n there was a there was a hong kong based uh kind of n g o that ran this similar thing called the refugee run and they they did it um, at the Davos I think was it where they did a physical version of that and they got this group of high-flying you know heads of state and so on into the room and as soon as they were into the room they were grabbed by police officers, and they were, or, or by some people, and thrown into this boat. And then they had to go through this water. And then they were grabbed by police, and they had to give up their clothes. And, I don't know. It was a very harrowing experience, and of of what it would feel like to be uh, a refugee trying to escape uh, across borders, uh, in in very perilous ways um and again it completely brought them to tears and it was it was it was very uh, so i think i think uh I, I i do believe that uh that power of storytelling is super powerful um my only qu- i ha- which is something i think i, I question about vr is um uh, is that sort of weird experiential distance uh, like i feel um we we are our bodies as much as our minds and um um uh, you know we are wired as biological beings and what does what do our bodies do in response to various situations in ways that sitting on my sofa with a vr headset may not allow me to do i think there are many many powerful stories to be told and um, it is then a question of the fidelity of the medium we talk about but i'm sure um there are some there are lots of different ways we are we ourselves are looking into kind of you know what is it that we can tell that would feel compelling um like like you just mentioned the un story um is deeply compelling like i feel like the stories uh, perhaps have the our biggest hope stories are our biggest hope because you know from time immemorial we've always told each other stories it's it's a question of What are the stories we are telling? Whose stories are being heard? And what are the stories we are creating that can become guiding lights um, and that can get a lot of people behind them? And um, I don't know. um, Right now, I feel like it's that kind of, you know, the affect theory where anything that feels emotional and as the emotional, uh, you know, whether it's fear or anger or um, seems to be the driving force. So, you know... um, why is it that uh, Donald Trump says what he does? And, you know, that is his power of storytelling, to be honest. And he's really used it well. So that's the scary bit of storytelling, I suppose, in a long-winded way. Yeah. That the who holds the power and what are the narratives that the people who are in power are constructing? So in a way, it's almost like what are the counter narratives that we can construct yeah, and kind of right. spread into the world?
3: It's so interesting because I mean, I I did a book, I wrote a book uh, which came out about three years ago called "The Myth Gap," um, which was all about how we used to have lots of shared stories, yeah. Um, and then in the in the modern age, and especially in the last few decades, we've decided that you know things are either literally scientifically true or they're not true at all. So you get the situation where if you look up myth in a thesaurus, it's in the same entry as like fiction and fabrication, um, and so we've sort of. You know, and I, I think this reads across to lots of progressive politics. I mean, certainly ten years ago, you could see the situation in the US, for example, where the Tea Party and people on the kind of the populist right were running, as you've just described, with these tremendously resonant stories. And lots of the progressives trying to kind of fight back were assuming that they could do so on the basis of evidence rather than stories. And I mean, you know, I I was working especially on climate change um, uh, around, you know, from 2005 to 2010 or thereabouts. And it was so striking that lots of activists and campaigners assumed, well, you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says we're right. So that's the end of the story. You know, we've got the evidence on our side, case closed. And then we're a bit sort of stunned when the Tea Party kind of ran over us with a tank, just because it had a better story. And then in, in a way, I think it was similar with Hillary Clinton's loss to Donald Trump in 2016—that her campaign was very, you know, much based on facts and evidence—and they assumed that, you know, the polling data shows we're going to win, so we're going to win. Uh, and, and Donald Trump just had the better stories. But I, I, think that your question of like what kind of stories are the ones that will help us is, is you know, central in all of this. And I, you know, we've touched on this conversation a couple of times in um, fight or flight responses. Um that you know when we perceive a threat, you know, and obviously it's a physiological response, and we know what it feels like you know your heart beats faster and your breath becomes shorter, and you know you're ready to kind of like either sprint away or fight someone, which is great if you're being attacked, but you know really unhelpful when it's a political threat to do with a shared challenge in society and one of the things that fascinates me is the the, the idea in psychology that there's actually a, an alternative way of responding to threat, um, which is the the threat response that psychologists call tend and befriend. Um, and it's what we often see in the aftermath of a natural disaster. I mean, you know, the kind of popular notion is that after a natural disaster, you have a total breakdown of law and order, and there's mass looting, and you have to declare martial law. And actually, that's completely wrong. The whole field of disaster sociology Shows that you know in the aftermath of disasters, people show a huge degree of solidarity of heroism and selflessness um and it's what you see in the first seventy two hours after an earthquake, for example, before the you know the emergency services or the humanitarian agencies have even got there that people are their own first responders, and you know they really rise to the challenge and show enormous solidarity as i say and that's the kind of tend and befriend response at work where People are tending to themselves and their immediate family group, and they're befriending others to build social networks to help them do that. And so, where fight or flight is a response to threat, it's concerned just with your individual self, not with anybody else. It makes you less empathetic. Um, You know, tend and befriend does the opposite. You're concerned with the good of of a larger collective, it makes you more empathetic. It's much more helpful for the kind of issues we're up against in the early 21st century. So I guess then the question becomes, so how, you know, how do we propagate both stories and also kind of practices that can make us more readily able to go into tend and befriend when something threatening happens rather than going into fight or flight? Because you can see fight or flight all over our politics. I mean, that's our whole problem right now. Um, And I think that the kind of immersive experiences we were just talking about are really relevant to this. I mean, there's um, a woman I know called Bree Code, who's a software designer and an artificial intelligence expert. She used to work for Ubisoft on um, the Assassin's Creed games, and she observed that you know lots of the computer games that are kind of marketed most heavily basically keep you in fight or flight all the time. They're kind of draining. You feel physically wrung out at the end of a couple of hours playing a game like you know Call of Duty or something like that. So she's pioneering the design of computer games that keep you in Tend and Befriend where, you know, there isn't like a task you have to complete. There's no time limit. They're just sort of games that take you into a very different emotional state. And it turns out there's kind of a lot of demand for that, which the games industry haven't hasn't really worked towards. But I think sort of, you know, finding ways to get these quite abstruse ideas like Tend and Befriend out there in kind of, you know, popular storytelling and in computer games and movies and so on, That that feels like something the creative industry could do that would be so helpful at this point give us give us some different kind of archetypes to reach for
2: absolutely no i really like that i really like the idea of tend and befriend a lot obviously i am biased towards the medium of storytelling because that's my that's what i do but i also feel that that is something that kind of um Uh, could be uh, a way to spread the idea of 10 and befriend, as you said, a a lot further. I mean, there's there's, there's sort of many different ways we can, paths we can take, you know, like how do we make sure that... you know like I really right now especially given the whole kind of black lives matter protests and my my own me like I was revisiting my own childhood and the history that I was taught um I am deeply troubled by the kind of uh history that I was taught versus my partner who's brought in brought born and brought up in England was taught uh, around colonial colonial, colonial history and um, and so I think, I feel there is a big work, a lot of work to be done around uh, kind of broad or, and all encompassing ideas of reparations. I think the stories we're gonna to have to tell are stories um of forgiveness as much as as of of, of new possibility um uh, and of 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 you know change because I think uh, Wherever we go, because I, the the, I, the future is old, as you know, as John would say, it, it's not a new shiny thing they're going to land into in the future. And so, if you're taking our history with us, we need to acknowledge our histories, and we need to really tell some really powerful stories about uh, what went wrong and what can go, what we can do to make it better or help each other. Because I think for us to tell those new stories around tend and befriend. We need to tend and befriend what what has been uh, severed in the past. I think that's something I'm thinking a lot about these days.
3: Mm. Yeah, right. I mean I sorry a bit of a tangent. It's no I no I, I wanted to ask you about it actually, because you mentioned reparations earlier in the conversation um, and in particular the challenge of how do we navigate this, you know, difficult, charged territory in a way that brings us together rather than kind of exploding the conversation. So we end up, you know, more polarized than ever. Um, And I think that it's a really interesting one because there's no, that, you know, you can't be objective in this conversation. You're of everybody, every participant is coming, you know, with their own um, personal background and their upbringing and their heritage. And I think it's sort of, it's something where i've found it like you know frequently challenging myself to navigate because i mean i come from um, a background of you know privilege on every count i'm like sort of you know i grew up here in britain i'm white i'm a man um i'm straight you know it's sort of privilege 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 and to begin with you know when I sort of first started thinking like much more deeply about these issues, there was part of me that just wanted to sort of trigger and push the whole discussion away because I sort of felt like I'm automatically shamed in these conversations, and therefore I don't want to participate in these conversations. And I think over time I've realised that, you know, that that's a kind of immature response. There's no alternative but to do the work of kind of processing this. But equally, I think it's helpful if we can have root maps. I mean, stories, I guess. That can show how doing that work, both individually and collective, you know where it can take us, the kind of gifts that that has in store, so that it doesn't just become a discourse about kind of punishment and shaming, without without in any way ducking, you know, not to duck the wrongs that have been done. And I suppose part of my thinking about that is I, I'm fascinated by the idea that in any situation where there is trauma, and of course I think you know in recent years we've all started to internalize the idea that trauma you know can live on for generations i mean there's sort of you know the research that i came across when i was living in jerusalem about how trauma is inherited among children and even grandchildren of holocaust survivors and not just as conditioned behaviors but it actually is an epigenetic phenomenon i mean it's fascinating and of course all of that is so so relevant when we're talking mm-hmm. about histories of colonialism and racism mm-hmm. and so on um so i guess you know one thing that's fascinating is to me is the way that where there is a trauma that's taken place, healing is needed certainly um, for the victim of the trauma, but actually that psychologically speaking, perpetrators of trauma need healing yes. too. There is also a hurt that has happened there. So that feels like some something that can help yeah. us in this, I guess, a sense that all of us ultimately need to be yeah. healed, including those of us who's you know ancestors were perpetrators of some of these yeah, harms absolutely um but what do you what do you i mean what what sort of stories or kind of root maps to use that broader framing do you, do you think can kind of help us to find our way through this territory in a way that does ultimately bring us together
2: sure. yeah no i mean there's something we're working on at the minute i mean when i i am also in no position will talk about really the idea of reparations at a very civic you know in a very civic justice social justice way I'm thinking I'm inspired by the work of Jason Moore and Raj Patel who talk about reparation ecology and when you talk about reparation ecology you're talking about every reparation at an ecological scale you know we cannot talk because i I'm I'm, I'm very deeply embedded in in the climate change uh, um, uh issue and you know the projects around that uh, thinking about what it means you know um uh, to move into a future which we are going to have exaggerated uh, um, crises so it is about uh, they they connect the points dots around um uh, capitalism but capitalism is connected to colonialism is connected to kind of the way women indigenous people and slaves slaves were treated people were treated the kind of uh the way we treat our planet the way we it's ext- the extractive methods of capitalism that have many have constantly extracted resources from our planet from without having giving things back so at every scale that the idea of reparations at a meta level of what does it mean to reconcile to replenish and ream but I think it's so the story has to start with recognition that there is, that there is a way that we cannot do any othering. Nobody needs, everybody needs to come on board. So I completely agree with you that when you start doing uh, accusatory reactionary shaming, that puts people who could be your uh, comrades on the opposite side. So we need comrades. And I think the way to do that is to recognize. From recognition, we can then move into what they call reimagining and towards uh, what an altered world could look like. And that's something we're doing. We're using, I suppose, this kind of genre of mythopoetry or kind of um, more uh, kind of uh, artistic uh, approach in this instance imagine an altered world where um, um, uh, we experience resurgence. So at at a human level, at a planetary scale, um, at at the relationship between humans and non-humans, at the things we hold value as opposed to it being extractive is reciprocal in nature. Um, so these kind sort of themes are built into a couple of art projects and installations we are currently uh, designing for mm. next year.
3: I also love the idea of restorative justice.
2: Um, yes, I was about to obviously... say that actually, when you mentioned that, <laughs> right. uh, When you mentioned that it's so hard for the person who's gone through, who's who's a proponent. Mm. At that point, I was thinking about restorative justice, and I didn't quite know enough about it, but I just heard a podcast the other day um and it's 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 quite a project it's quite an undertaking isn't it right yeah
3: because i think what's you know when i think of i I used to work in international development and looking at things like the truth and reconciliation commission in south africa or also the um the kind of grassroots level gachacha courts in rwanda that helped um do a lot of peace building after the genocide there it's really interesting how you know there's a kind of the truth telling is absolutely unavoidable. You know, you have to face up to what's happened. Um, but once that's been done, there is the possibility of you know of kind of rapprochement of forgiveness of kind of moving forward. Um, but I think that I mean I, I'm fascinated in the kind of in how this idea in dispute resolution of uh, you know restorative justice has kind of deep. Uh, theological and mythopoetic roots, um, and especially how the idea of atonement is central to that. Because I think it's interesting when we look at kind of how issues of colonialism, for example, in the media, it's often reduced to sort of like, you know, has a national leader apologised or not? And and I, you know, I don't mean to disparage that. There can be an important place for that, but you know, atonement in a way is a much deeper idea. Because as you're saying, it's not just sort of. Oh sorry that that happened it's it's going beyond that to do everything possible to right the wrong or the injustice that has been done and so that takes you into reparation but in a way that can be creative and imaginative rather than punitive and reductive um so i guess yeah just sort of finding more examples of you know how that can look in real life and sort of you know propagating those case studies would be a a great thing to do at this point
2: no, definitely, and I think it could—it—it it, it sort of feels like it's almost like a companion to your kind of collective psychology work. It feels like it's very much in that same space of uh, thinking about all of us together uh, collectively, rather than um, that you know the whole idea of othering. Yeah and that stuff that you were talking before. Oh, this is this is very enriching. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I know.
3: It's been so great talking to you too. <laughs> Thank you for yeah, this job. Yeah, I
2: know. I, I <laughs> yeah, I really, I learned a lot and I kind of feel like I should pick your brains again one day soon. I'm sure we'll,
3: we'll do that. Likewise, I would love to. I'd love to stay in touch.
0: Wow, so many insights. I think the most compelling thought for me, to be honest, was jumping between the macro and the micro. What do I mean by that? So actually, I think if I look at myself, um, and let, let's take maybe COVID nineteen as a recent happening. I think for me was was rather abstract. Something in the TV that is happening in somewhere in China, and then mid of March, suddenly from zero to one hundred percent, it became a very personal topic. So this is what I mean. Something abstract on a macro level became incredibly personal on a micro level. And I think that's an interesting thought that impacts also, I think, the big storytelling of
1: politics pretty much. What do you think about it, Tim? I think it's fascinating that um, these big issues need stories and experiences and emotional experiences, very much what Anab's work is about. It's films and it's speculative designs that just, I think, help you form a different kind of awareness than, let's say, abstract PowerPoint slides or reading facts and figures. And and Alex, in a way, is also really referring to the power of stories and saying, we need a bigger story. We need a larger us. We need a greater story, a new narrative. That's the only thing that is going to help us imagine a better future and then basically join forces and align and overcome polarization if we want to build a better world after COVID-19. And that's very much lacking, isn't it? I mean, we're very good at Imagining dystopian futures, but we're not very good actually at utopias in imagining positive utopian futures and dreaming big. I think we're kind of self-censoring ourselves in a way. Well, I like powerpoints, so. <laughs> 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 no, uh, but but I,
0: I completely agree because um, if you look, for example, I, I think sustainability is such a topic for me. I think you can read a lot of studies, and I think no one doubts these studies. Okay, let's say most of the people don't doubt <laughs> these these uh, studies. Nevertheless, if I'm really true to myself and really honest, do I shift and change my behavior tomorrow? And I'm frank here because it's just between me and you, Tim. I'm not so super sustainable in my behavior. And I just ask myself right now, why? And I think that the issue is exactly what I said in the beginning is on a macro level, I get it. On a micro level, then the question is, how can I change the behavior? And really to make this translation, make it a personal issue, not something in the TV, I think it's really a challenge that needs to be solved.
1: Yeah, I was I remember I was once at a conference where they had uh put up tents in the basement of the conference uh, center. And then it was, I think, eight tents, and each of these tents basically featured the air they had collected or simulated, rather, from various cities in the world. So you walked in there, and it's like, well, this is the air you breathe in London. This is the air you breathe in Sao Paulo. This is the air you breathe in Beijing. And it was fascinating because, first of all, you realize like, how different the airs are, and then you mm-hmm. realize how incredibly polluted and horrible the air is if you step into these tents just for a few minutes – And, you know, that experience showed me that suddenly I I think it was a real wake-up call, much more so than reading about air pollution. You know, it was just really literally stepping into this tent and having this experience for a few minutes. It's, It's a wonderful example you give me, basically, to explain how
0: to make it very precise, to make it personal in the end. That was a further episode of the Next Visions and House of Beautiful Business podcast, so... You can find further cool episodes on every podcasting platform. Looking forward, Tim, to continue discussion within the next episodes of the Next Visions and House of Beautiful Business podcast. Thank you, Tim.